a reading of Psalm 4. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are saying, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. The word of the Lord. So this winter, we're, uh, we're going to the Psalms to learn how to pray, and anyone can pray. Uh, but if we only pray out of the, the poverty of our own words and experiences, we will miss out on the depth and the breadth of others' experiences. The, the Psalms have a way of taking us deeper into our own hearts than we would ever go on our own. And they show us God as He really is, not as we would have Him to be. And they bring us into intimate fellowship with Jesus who prayed these very prayers himself. There are all kinds of psalms. Each week we're going to look at a, a different type. Now, I came of age in the 1990s when a lot of churches had latched on to this idea that worship ought to be this great, big, joyful celebration all the time. And so a lot of happy music was written in the 90s. Um, <laughs> Some of it was really beautiful. Some of it really, uh, you know, glorified God and brought joy and maturity to the church. Uh, but as a whole, it didn't leave much room for the grisly realities of life. And so for some, it made Christianity feel like an escape from reality. Often there was this unspoken assumption that Christians were supposed to be happy all the time. And therefore, Christians are not supposed to be angry or sad or full of doubt. But that assumption, you know, it doesn't square with the Psalms, does it? Because roughly two-thirds of them are or include lament, or what some scholars call complaint psalms. It's the most common type by far, which I find totally refreshing, because it means that Christianity is not an escapist religion, it looks suffering and injustice right in the eye. And Christianity doesn't require you to pretend to feel a certain way. In fact, it encourages us to bring all our emotions, even our doubts, to God and to one another. How comforting is that? How, how affirming is that? That the God of the universe would allow so many expressions of anger and confusion and grief and desperation and sorrow to crack the canon of Scripture. The volume of these prayers that we find in Scripture suggests that the God of the Bible is inviting us to complain to Him. I have two teenagers. Sometimes teenagers need to rail and rage against everything that's messed up and stupid in the world. Amen? 
And as their father, I need to let them do this. Often I find myself agreeing with them. Complaining about what's wrong with the world doesn't make my kids morbid. It means that they're paying attention. It means that they care. It means that they long for things to be made right. And the fact that they sometimes complain to me means that they trust me and they expect me to care and maybe sometimes to actually do something about it. And as a father, I should be encouraged by this. Apparently, God is too. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says that lament and faith are totally compatible. He says the experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith does not indicate a deficient faith. It's not something to be outgrown or put behind you. Rather, it is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. In a broken world, authentic faith will inevitably include lament. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's all kinds of suffering as a result of injustice and calamity and sin. There's unhealed pain and unmet needs. And if we're going to posit a God who cares, a God who is powerful enough to do something about the brokenness that we see around us and within us, there has to be room for lament. But lament is more than just blowing off steam. It's more than protest. It's powerfully formative. Waltke says that if God always gave us what we wanted right when we asked, that might in the end destroy us spiritually. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 says that we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. The very act of moving toward God in our pain, in our confusion, and confiding in Him, entrusting ourselves, entrusting our world to Him, just the act of complaining to God can powerfully transform our character and produce a living hope inside of us. We've, uh, we've talked quite a bit about deconstruction in recent years, the process of taking a step back to re-examine the faith that you've received and trying your best to, to disentangle true Christianity from the, the enculturated stuff that often gets wrapped tightly around it and bundled up with it. And often what, what prompts deconstruction is the realization that the faith we were handed doesn't account for, can't make room for, the complexities of life. Sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes Christianity gets pitched as this magic formula for attaining a perfect life. If you're faithful to God, if you follow the rules, if you do these things and avoid these things, you'll have it all. The perfect marriage, the perfect family, and it sounds great until you try it. And pretty soon you're dashed against the rocks of reality. Because there is no magic formula. There's nothing that you can do to guarantee certain outcomes in your life. Think about it. The only person in history who's ever lived a perfect life was arrested on trumped-up charges, falsely condemned, tortured, and executed. What's that line from the Princess Bride? Life is pain. Anyone tells you otherwise is selling something. 
The question is not, will we suffer? The question is, will our suffering make us hard or soft? Fragile or resilient? Cynical or hopeful? Closed up and sealed off? Or available and full of compassion? The answer, believe it or not, will actually have a lot to do with whether or not we've learned to lament. Whether we hold our pain in or let it out. Whether we allow our troubles to drive a wedge between us and God or allow them to drive us deeper into his arms. If you're deconstructing right now, what I hope that you take from this sermon is that not only is there no magic formula for attaining the perfect life, there's no right or wrong way to pray. Except maybe to say that we should pray authentically, not inauthentically. We should bring God our true self, our whole self, rather than what we think he wants to hear. So if you're mad at God, if you're confused, if you're ashamed, grieving, exhausted, discouraged, you should tell him. I mean, he already knows. He's a big boy. He can take it. There's no need to pretend or stuff it down or censor yourself. You could pray through your tears. You can play, pray with, with clenched fists. You can groan if that's all you've got. But whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, the conversation with God doesn't have to end. Your prayers don't have to stop. There are lots of ways to lament, plenty to lament about. So there's, of course, lots of variety within this particular type of psalm. There are psalms that complain about sickness, uh, persecution, war, injustice, People lament over their own sin. Communal laments are, are included where the whole nation gets together and brings their complaint before God. There are imprecatory psalms. These are psalms in which the, the, the victims of violence ask God to turn the tables, right? To execute justice. And some of these psalms are really hard to read. Like Psalm 137, where the psalmist glares at the enemy and says, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. That's in the Bible, friends. Now, we should not assume from that psalm that we're supposed to seek our enemy's destruction. We should take from that psalm that God permits his children to pray like that, to pray angry, to pray hurt, to pray raw. The point is not that our prayers are theologically orthodox and virtuous. The point is that no matter what happens, we keep praying. We keep seeking God. That's how much God values his relationship with you. He would rather you pray a violent, vengeful prayer than not pray at all. Do you see the freedom that he gives you to be honest with him, to bring him your authentic self? There are many kinds of laments. Um, what do they all have in common? Well, scholars say that biblical lament psalms pretty much all have these elements. They begin with a direct address of God. Hey, I'm talking to you. Pay attention to me. It's very bold. You could even say confrontational. For instance, Psalm 5, listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. 
And then there's the lament. This is where the psalmist lays their complaint out on the table. For example, Psalm 54. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. Or Psalm 6. I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. And then there's usually an expression of confidence, trust in God. Often by appealing to God's character or to something that he's done in the past. For example, Psalm 27, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then there's the petition. This is where the psalmist says, all right, God, I need you to act. I need you to intervene. I need you to do something about this. Deliver me, right? And it's often very direct, very bold. For example, Psalm 43, vindicate me, my God. Plead my cause against an unfaithful nation. Rescue me from those who are deceitful and wicked. Or Psalm 6, arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God. Decree justice. Get moving. And then laments almost always conclude with a word of praise, or at least a promise to praise God when the situation is resolved, which, which I just love. I just, I just love that that's there. You know, God, I'm not really up to praising you right now. But after you deliver me, I will praise you all day and all night. So don't you want to deliver me so that I can praise you? Wouldn't that be good for you? You should really deliver me. It would create some good PR. Listen to the end of Psalm 22. Now, this is one of the darkest psalms in the, in the whole Psalter. It's the psalm that Jesus prayed when he was hanging on the cross. But listen to how it ends. It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is how it ends. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him. He's listened to his cry for help. See? Pretty much every lament psalm has these elements, so not always in this order. But they're all there, pretty much. Well, let's zoom in on, on a, a particular psalm, Psalm 4. Um, and let me just encourage you, if you have your Bible, take it out. Keep it open to Psalm 4. Have it in front of you. Bring your Bible to church. If you don't have a Bible, stop by the Welcome Center before you leave. We'd love to give you a Bible if you don't have one. But have it open. See, it, see the text in context. Make sure I'm giving you the straight dope. Here we go. Psalm 4. It's written by King David. It's a crisis psalm. It begins with a direct address, exactly what we would expect. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. And then it moves straight to complaint. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Now, we don't yet know what David's distress is, but we'll soon find out. Um, the second half of the complaint is actually addressed to people. Verse 2. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? What, what's going on here? Well, the word that's translated you people actually means men of rank, bigwigs, nobles. David is probably addressing his own cabinet. 
According to verse 2, they have lost faith in David's leadership. And they lost faith in God. And now they're turning to idols. And this happens all the time, doesn't it? Something goes wrong, prayer goes unanswered, and we start to sour on God. Right? Why did God allow this? Why, 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 didn't, why didn't you prevent this? Why aren't you answering me? And we start looking around for maybe something else to help us get out of a tight spot. But let's look at this also from David's perspective. I mean, his closest associates have lost faith in him. They're turning on him. They're slandering his reputation. He's grieving. And then on top of that, his confidants, his colleagues, are walking away from God. If you've been there, you know how painful these experiences are. When the people you trust, the people you work with, collaborate with, follow Jesus with, turn on you. It's painful. Now, what happens in verses 3 to 5 is, is somewhat unique um, to Psalm 4. It's, it's not typical of a lament psalm. But David, in effect, interrupts his lament in order to admonish his colleagues who are walking away. And in verse 4, he says this. He says to them, Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. So David's looking at his... His, his unfaithful colleagues, and he's saying, look, self-examine, right? These men are essentially saying, look, God isn't working for me. I'm going to find a better deal. And David says, oh, search your hearts. If you jump ship every time God doesn't meet your expectations or give you what you want, was it ever about him? Or was it always about you getting what you want? You know, people often come to church because they're looking for something, right? Family life has gotten hard. Marriage has gotten hard. They've lost their job. They're battling an addiction. And so you come thinking, oh, maybe this will help give me something to get me over the hump. And it's fine. It's totally okay if that's where you start. But eventually you need to realize that what you really need is God himself. That, that God's goal is not to get you back on your feet so that you can live independent of him. God's goal is to become your life. And these men don't understand that. All it took was, was a crisis and they were gone. Well, that didn't work. I'm out of here. David says, don't, don't go chasing down some idol. Bring your sacrifice to God. Trust him. And then verses 6 and 7, that's, that's David's petition. Look at verse 6. Many, Lord, are asking... Who will bring us prosperity? Oh, let the light of your face shine on us. So this I, me prayer suddenly becomes a we, us prayer, doesn't it? This is the first clue that whatever's happening, whatever this crisis is, it's affecting more than just David and his house. Many people are suffering. The whole nation is desperate for God's intervention. Hmm. Now let's look at verse 7. Fill my heart with joy. When their grain and new wine abound. Aha! This is the crux. The crisis underneath all the relational and spiritual turmoil is a drought. Do you see it? This is why people are turning against the king and against God. It hasn't rained. The crops are dying in their fields. The nation's well-being is at risk. 
Now we understand what David is asking for when he says, who will bring us prosperity? Rain! In ancient Near Eastern cultures, kings were assumed to be responsible for the weather, uh, especially for rain that would ensure a good harvest. Now, often kings would take credit every time there was a good harvest. I don't know if they took credit when there was a bad harvest, but they would take credit for a good harvest. This is paganism, of course, but it was widespread across the ancient Near East. The reason that the men of rank have rejected David is because they wrongly believe that he is responsible for Israel's lack of rain. Many scholars believe that when David says, how long will you love delusions and seek false gods, he's pointing to the fact that these men likely went down the street to a Canaanite temple to make an offering to Baal, the Canaanite storm god, to see if they could extract some rain from him. They've rejected David, they've rejected God because of drought. And now we can understand David's lament. God, I'm trying my best to be faithful to you. I'm trying to do my best. Nobody trusts me. My closest colleagues have walked out on me. They're slandering my reputation. They're chasing after other gods. The nation's at risk. My reputation is at risk. Your reputation is at risk. What are you going to do about it? Did you know that you can pray like that? There's a lot going on in the psalm. A lot of what David holds dear is being threatened. But the crisis doesn't push David away from God. It moves him closer. Instead of allowing his critics to define him, he lets God define him. Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Instead of wallowing in self-pity, David prays. He casts his care upon the one who cares for him. Instead of shifting the blame, instead of saying, hey, I know it's not raining, but I'm the only one in this administration who's actually praying to someone with ears. You guys are praying to some statue. David doesn't do that. He just tells God what his people need. Instead of taking revenge, instead of going after their reputation. David pastors them. He pastors them. He calls them to pray. He urges them to trust. Instead of pacifying his detractors and telling them what they want to hear, he just brings their petitions before God. David doesn't know what's going to happen. He's just knocking on the door of the one who's powerful and good and might be able to do something about it. Instead of checking out, instead of saying, hey, you know, if you guys think you can handle this crisis better, fine. Go for it. Instead of doing that, David presses in. He seizes this as an opportunity to persevere in prayer and to seek God's face and to remember who God is. When you are in a crisis like David, you are incredibly vulnerable. You are incredibly vulnerable to all kinds of temptation. It is so easy to focus on your pain and to look for someone to blame, and to lash out or check out. I mean, hurt people hurt people, right? Even if you try to press those emotions down, they will inevitably leak out of you in the form of sarcasm, passive aggression. You know what I'm talking about. But lament gives us a way out. 
instead of reacting out of our pain, we can respond out of the love that we receive from God when we're desperate and cry out to him. Lament allows us to have integrity. Instead of compartmentalizing ourselves, we can, we can be a whole person, an integrated person. We can be hurt and hopeful. We can love someone and confront them when they're off base. We can be confident in God and still not have all the answers. We can believe and also doubt. We can rage against what's wrong without becoming cynical and jaded. Look at David. He's distressed and he's at peace. He can talk honestly about the pain his friends have caused him and still genuinely care for his friends. He can validate his people's anxiety without getting sucked down into it himself. How? Because he's bringing his whole self before God. He's learning to see his, his circumstances, as distressing as they are, against the backdrop of who God is. He's in a tight spot, but God is righteous. God is merciful. God is his security. I love verse 8. David says, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. About 12 years ago, I was installing a lawn in our old house, and right after I put, like, 400 pounds of seed down, my well dried up. This is like almost an acre of lawn I was trying to install here. I literally lost sleep over it. Not proud of this. I was torn up. I had done all this planning, all this expense, all this hard work. I was going to lose my lawn before a single seed germinated. My neighbor bailed me out. I gave her $5 a day to use her spigot. But in the grand scheme of things, I mean, come on, it's a lawn, right? It's not like my, my ability to feed my family was tied up in my lawn, right? It wasn't going to impact anything important. It wasn't our crop. It wasn't our livelihood. It was just a lawn. But I lost sleep over it because I couldn't control it. And I had invested all this time and money in it, and it was being threatened, and this is exactly what happens when we take our eyes off of God in our pain. We become anxious. We ruminate. We rehearse worst-case scenarios. We throw ourselves pity parties. We lash out. We withdraw. We lose sleep. Whereas David sleeps in peace, not because it rained and his troubles are gone, but because he's turning to God. He's learning to rest in God. David prays, verse 8, before the rain comes. This is how prayer enlarges our soul. This is how prayer makes us more like Jesus. When David prays, suddenly a whole bunch of things come into focus. First of all, David is not responsible for the rain. David need not even con concern himself with his approval rating. It doesn't matter what other people say about him. David is responsible for pointing others to God and bringing the nation's need to God. David is a beloved child of God who can rest in God. David is lamenting his way into wholeness. Lament is a vital spiritual practice that brings us closer to God and to each other. It's in our honest, 
vulnerable cries that we discover the depth of God's love and care for us. Lament transforms our pain into a deeper understanding and celebration of God's presence in our lives. The God who sees you, the God who loves you, who wants good for you, that God is inviting you to bring your whole self, your true self, into his presence and to talk with him about your wounds and the sources of your distress and anxiety. And he invites you to lift your heads, if even for a moment, above your circumstances, above your pain, so that you can see him, so that you can see his power and his goodness and his mercy. He invites you to be angry with him, to hurt in his presence, to be a complicated jumble of belief and doubt, joy and sorrow, confidence and fear. Why? So that we can keep looking at him and experience his face. To know that we are loved, to know that we are held. As we lament, we become resilient, compassionate people who are shaped by prayer, not by worry. The most hopeful people I know have been through the ringer. Whatever hope and compassion lives in me came through crises, came through pain. Hope, joy, compassion, trust, these things are forged in the crucible of pain and uncertainty if we look to God in the midst of them. The next time you're in a tight spot, look to David. He didn't assign blame. He could have. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't lash out or check out. He pressed in. He lifted his head above his circumstances and meditated on God's goodness and mercy until he could sleep soundly. The next time you're in a tight spot, look to Jesus. On the night he was arrested, he gathered his friends and he asked them to pray for him. And he came before God with radical openness and vulnerability. Take this cup away from me. I don't want to go through this. And he came before God with radical trust and surrender. Yet not my will, but your will be done. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he also cried out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. When you're in a tight spot, look to him. Look to the one who, if anyone understands our pain, our wounds, our confusion, it's Jesus. Look to the one who lost God's face so that he could deliver us, so that he could heal us, so that he could restore us to the Father and make us beautiful. Look to him so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Look to him so that your pain can transform you into a person of love and gentleness and compassion.